Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. Our scripture readings tonight will come from Acts chapter 19, uh, verses 26 through 28. Acts chapter 19, verses 26 through 28. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trait of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana, may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. I want to do an overview of the book of Ephesians. And we have six chapters. I I, I don't intend to preach an hour tonight, but uh, I want to touch on each chapter so that when you leave tonight, you have a good feeling of what the book of Ephesians is really about. You can't really grasp Ephesians without knowing about where it starts. And of course, you you read in Acts 18 and 19 uh, that you've just heard some of 19 read. You you don't understand Ephesians until you understand Diana, the goddess Diana, or Artemis. And this this is the chief city of Asia, and she is the chief deity of Asia. She is the goddess Diana. And, and as you read chapter 19 in, of Acts, what you find is that the great occupation of moneymaker was for the silversmiths to make little idols, little images of Diana. And I'm not going to describe her to you. She's rather grotesque. But you can go online and you can look up Diana of Ephesus when you get home and when you, you'll see the image of Diana. But it wasn't just that. There was a temple to Diana. What's interesting in history is that over the centuries, the temple, which was magnificent, was destroyed in one way or another and rebuilt two or three times. The one that existed during the time of of Paul is described here by Antipater, Antipater of Sidon. Let's see, there we go. There's the quote. Listen to this. I said, eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, in which is a road for chariots, and the statue of, statue of Zeus by Altheus, and the hanging gardens, the Colossus of the Sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis, the temple to Diana, that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy. And I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught so grand. The people worshipped her. The people spent their money to worship her. And Paul caused a terrible stir in Ephesus in chapter 19 of Acts because he said there be no gods that are made with hands. And that's, that's interesting because, you know, you can, you can just shake everybody up when you say that. I don't, I, because, because Diana was made by hands. It would be interesting for you to go back to Gideon's time and, and have his daddy. Remember what his daddy said about Baal when Gideon destroyed the altar to Baal? He said, look, Come on now, either Baal is real or he's not, and can't we, shouldn't we just let him fight his own battles? He's either God or he's not God. Same thing is applying here to to Diana, only they didn't say that, but they sure do hate the Apostle Paul. 
because he's getting into their pocketbook and this is their occupation to make these little idols. So what would you say if you were going to write a letter, you're the Apostle Paul, you planted that church, and now you're writing a letter back to them to encourage them. That's the book of Ephesians. What would you write? What would you write? It's very interesting to me that you read you read Revelation 1, 2, and 3 and the, the letters to the seven churches of ancient Asia, and what you're going to find, you find this in the other epistles too, but just because Christians are under a lot of pressure, just because they're living in an atmosphere that is anti-Christian, does not, does not mean that the inspired writer is not going to write and say, now you be sure you get the doctrine right. <laughs> He's still going to do that. You know, you, you write in Revelation. We, you, 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 you're just doing so good. I know you're in a hard time, but you still have some people in the congregation that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. You get rid of that now. In other words, there's still a standard to follow, even if the people, the Christians, are under some difficult times. And you've got that in the book of Ephesians. But it whets my appetite to know what it is that the apostle will write to the Ephesians. And, and let's go down. I've made a list of these things. The first one is hope. Let's see. Let me give you, show me the picture of um, the temple to Diana, just to give you a feel for that. Uh, those uh, pillars are six feet wide at the base, and, and many of them are covered in gold. And I think there were 127 of those pillars. It must have been magnificent. They had a lot of respect for this figment of their imagination called Diana. All right, back to that slide you had. There we go. Here's the list I want to do tonight. The first one is chapter 1, and it's hope. Hope. long time ago when I was a young preacher, why some old gentleman brother came to me and said, be sure in your preaching that you always give them hope. How important is this? You say, I want you to be faithful. I want you to hold on to your faith. I want you to follow Jesus Christ and never, 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 never give up. And what do you say? You, you tell people about heaven. You tell Christians about the, the heaven that we have in store for us, the inheritance that we have in Christ. That's what you do. If you didn't have hope, I don't know how you'd go on. Do you? How would we go on? Now, here's what he does, and I think it's rather remarkable. If I said to you tonight, you're going to go to heaven, keep walking in the light of Jesus Christ, and you're going to go to heaven. And what if I repeated that 16, 17 times? You're going to go to heaven, you're going to go to heaven, you're going to go to heaven. What if I kept doing that? It would be redundant. Well, there, there's chapter 1. Now, now you, you may count this differently from me. Let's go to the next slide. Let me show you the list. I'm in chapter 1 and verse 2. And, I, you know, in my Bible, I've just, you can't see that, can you? But I've underlined these words. I'm in chapter 1, verse 2. Grace would be one, and peace from our God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, can you see one there? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Would you say the anticipation of heaven is a spiritual blessing? Yeah. Four, just as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. I love that one. Holy and without blame. Five, having predestined us. Now, never get that confused. It's not Calvinism. That was wrong. Calvinism said that, that God arbitrarily picked before you were born, who was going to be saved and who was going to be damned. And if you were in one category or the other, you, you, you weren't going to be able to change back and forth. And it's from this false doctrine that people today in various religions hold to once saved, always saved. 
That is to say, if you're saved, you cannot live in such a way as to be lost. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches the opposite. So you have Galatians 5 and verse 4. And if you go back to the old law, Paul says, you'll, you'll fall from grace or you're fallen from grace. And you understand how that is. But what is predestined is that the church would be established by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And people who came to, to God on his terms would receive remission of sins and they would be saved in the church of our Lord. That was predestined. It wasn't individuals predestined. It was the plan and the people who entered the church by that plan. So chapter 1 verse 5, having predestined us to adoption as sons, I would add that word, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he, he has made us accepted in the beloved. I'm accepted by God. In whom we have, here's another one, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness, I've underlined those, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Drop down to 11. Mm, this one's sweet. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. You ever inherit anything? At my house right now, I have a number of things that I've inherited, some of which... Um, are, are so terribly important to me. And then there, there's others that, that that carry with them such memories that I I can't bring myself to get rid of them. I have an you know what inheritance means. You, you're in part of the you're part of a family, and so you inherit those things. Heaven is that inheritance, Christian. You have an inheritance coming to you in Christ. You don't earn an inheritance. It's because you're part of a family. Right? First Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 3 says that heaven is your inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that face not away. Verse 13, in whom also you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. What's that? Gospel of your salvation. I love that. That's music to my ears. I want to go to heaven. I want to, I want to go to heaven when I leave this world. In whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. 18. The eyes of your understanding being, being enlightened. I can see clearly now that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And 22 says the church. It talks about the church and I'm part of the family of God. And the last one is chapter two and verse one. And you, he has made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. All right. Now, here's the problem, is that it's very easy for churches today, preachers today, to get all confused about the fact that we're, if we're recipients of God's grace, doesn't that mean that, that we're saved by grace alone? Now, it's true that none of us would have any hope without God's grace, but always remember that we're not saved by anything alone. We, we really aren't. And so you have chapter 2 coming up right after chapter 1. Chapter 1 is full of hope. Chapter 1 is full of, you're going to go to heaven and let's rejoice. And here's 16 or 17 different ways to say it. It's rather redundant. It's, it's, I don't know that you and I could imagine all those different ways, but the Holy Spirit gave it to Paul and he wrote it down. All right. Get to chapter 2, and the theme of chapter 2 is the Jews and Gentiles are saved by grace and faith. Chapter 2 is to say you have two distinct peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles, but they've been brought together in one, and that's the church. And now verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, which is before ordained that you should walk in them. Mm. And sometimes people have a wrong idea about this. For by, by grace you're saved through faith, and it's the gift of God. And so people read that and they say, oh, well, see, there you are. There's no part that I have in my salvation. I don't, you know, what? wait a minute. I, I know that I can't save myself, but the Bible, same Bible that says this, also says save yourselves from this untoward generation. There must be something, right? I know that Calvinism is wrong because 1 Peter 3 and verse 9 says, or 2 Peter 3 9, the Lord's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What's that? Repentance. You have to come to him on his terms. Now, I want to give you something to write in your margin in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. And if you have a paper Bible, I scribble this in there. And it, it's, it's this. Noah is a great example of being saved by grace through faith. Grace is everything that's, that God has done in order to save you. Faith is your part in coming to God on his terms. Now, here's Noah to demonstrate that. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is in the context of the flood, in the context of being saved from that terrible and fatal flood that killed so many people. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now here's the question. What did the grace do for him? And the answer is, I want you to build an ark. Here, here the, here's the design for it. 30 cubits, 50 cubits. I want you to build it, pitch it within and out with pitch, build it out of gopher wood. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 7, now we already have grace in Genesis 6, 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. In Hebrews 11 and verse 7, listen to this. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. What do you call that? Well, the Hebrews writer called it by faith. He did that by faith. Put it together, and what you have is Noah was saved by grace through faith. But suppose he said, "I'm, not, I'm, I'm saved by grace. I don't want I don't want anybody to think that I'm building that boat and I'm going to save myself with this ark." Yeah, the truth is, had God not blessed Noah, that ark would have sank to the bottom. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have floated. You know that. And yet. Had Noah sat on a rock over there and said, because I'm saved by grace, I don't have to do anything. I wouldn't do anything. I don't want people to think that I think I'm saved by works. What would have happened? What if he said, I'm not going to build the ark. I hear what God said, but I'm saved by grace. The fact is, he'd have died. He would have died. What do you call that? You call it Ephesians 2 and verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Noah? Was it a gift? I mean, your salvation from the flood, was it a gift? What do you think he would say? Yeah, he would say yes. Of course it was. You see all those dead bodies out there? I'm saved by grace, and I'm saved by faith. So it was important. So you have hope in the first chapter. In chapter 2, what you have is Jew and Gentile together, and we're all saved by grace through faith. Now chapter 3. The theme of this one is a faith worth keeping in persecution. Bear in mind that Paul's in a Roman prison. He's chained to a guard. God, I love Paul. Philippians 4 and verse 11 that I preached about last week was Paul saying, I, I don't speak in respect of need or want. I've learned in whatever situation I'm in therewith to be content. I don't reckon anybody ever meant it more than the apostle Paul. And here he is in prison. When you, when you think about Acts 16 and the Philippian jailer, 
and, and the, the beating and all of that. And, and, and then Pete, uh, Paul would write later in the book of Philippians, verse chapter 1, verse 3, and he would say, I thank God on every remembrance of you. I don't know if I, I don't know if I would be like that. I hope that I would be like that. But I'm telling you, that's the attitude of Paul. You know why? Because, because he is so immersed in the, in the reality, the awesome reality of gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the reality of going to heaven. So now chapter three, I want to drop down to verse seven. Bear in mind, he's writing this from prison, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power to me, who am less than the least of all the saints. This grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And this chain on my leg sure does hurt, and my back is still bleeding some, and I don't like the food here. Yeah, that's not what he says. He's so wrapped up in the reality of the gospel and that he gets to preach it to the Gentiles, verse 9, and to make all people see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. And now we get to reveal it. Drop down to 13. Therefore, I ask you, don't, don't lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. 16 that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with his might by his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love might be able to comprehend. Can you get this? With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He starts with hope. Then he goes to Grace and faith. You've got a role here to play in your salvation. And then chapter 3, you have this. Okay, here's chapter 4. Doctrine. Doctrine that unites Christians. In, in the West Huntsville family, we've had unity for many, many, many years. And something that, that I like to say is that I like to remind all of us, including myself, that it's got to be protected. You, you, you can't take it for granted. A lot of churches have lost it. I've been around. I've seen it. I've seen it. And, and you can lose it. We must never lose that. And every member of this church has to feel that, that responsibility. So we stay away from gossip, right? We stay away from strife and, and heated discussions and things that hurt people and... John 13 and 34, we're going to love one another. Everything I just said is true, and yet that's not what the unity is connected to really in chapter 4. So when you talk about the unity of the Christians in a congregation, it, it's about love, it's about acting and behaving right, it's about treating people the way we would like to be treated, but it's also about doctrine. So I just want you to be impressed that we started out with, you people are going to heaven, and then we're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God. So there's where we begin. Now he's going to say, you want to be united? I need you to be united in doctrine. That's what holds us together. Verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then the seven ones. There's one body. That's the church. 
Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. There's one body and one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. I just want to impress you that he is writing to these Ephesians. They're living in a, in a cesspool of idolatry. And, and it is, you can do, you can do some homework on ancient Ephesus. It is egregious. The, the defilement is, uh, is very strong. And that's the atmosphere in which they live and they walk every single day. And so he says, you've got to hold together. How do you hold together? Mm, doctrine. Don't remember, don't forget the doctrine. You've got to stay focused on the reality that there's only one of each of these things, no matter what anybody ever says to you, no matter what you hear, hold to this. There's only one of each of these. Now, you and I could spend some time, and I'll preach a sermon sometime, and we'll go through these, spend some time on it, but there's only one Lord. There's only one baptism. There's only one church, which is the body of Christ. So... There's the unity. Now here's, here's chapter 4 and 5. I want to start in 4, verse 25. And now he's going to talk about morality and marriage. Verse 25. Now, here's, here's in the next list. Oh, great, you got it up. Here we go. 25. Therefore, putting away lying. Incidentally, I've, I've got authority from heaven that it's right for preachers to preach about these moral issues tonight. Right? Here's the authority. Putting away lying, each one speak with his neighbor, speak truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. My temper, I've got to control my temper. That's a moral issue. Verse 28, stealing. Now he didn't say, I want, if you've been stealing, I want you to, maybe you stole a thousand dollars last year. Next year, just steal 500. The year after that, steal just 250. And eventually, you won't be stealing at all. That's not what he said. What he said is, let him that stole, steal no more. Right? Stop it. You stop that. 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. The, the, the Greek word for corrupt here means putrid. You know, you know any putrid words? Don't say putrid words. But what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers? 31. Let all bitterness now reach, reach down in your soul. Look deep in your soul right now. You got any of this going on inside? Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. We don't use clamor very much. What it means? It means screaming, crying. So I'm so enraged that, that I'm crying and I'm shouting at you. That's clamor. And evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind. And then verse 3 of chapter 5 includes fornication and uncleanness and covetousness. Sexual, be sexually pure. Because, verse 8, you were once in darkness. Verse 18, don't be drunk with wine. And then he comes to this, um, this subject of marriage. I'm not going to spend time tonight on it for sake of time. And, and you're familiar with it, I'm sure, already. But it's, it's in chapter 5 that he says, look, marriage is important. Now, isn't the, isn't the context very interesting? Hope, and then chapter 2 is you're one body in Christ, and you're saved by grace through faith. And you get the faith part right. 
And then he talks about how valuable it is to be a Christian and how awesome it is. And here he is from prison and he's saying, it's just so amazing that I get to preach the gospel of Christ and that you get to obey it. You get to be a Christian. Isn't that an amazing thing? In then chapter 5 he says, but you live moral lives now. Be sure. And he was very specific. I mean, this is application. Very specific. Here are the things you, don't, you aren't to do anymore. And then he says, and you hold on to your marriage. You get, you get this marriage thing right. How do you do that? And, and we get, we got about a half a chapter here. I would say that it's, it's probably the best marriage counsel that I can even imagine. I don't, I, this is inspired. This is amazing. How do you do it? How do you give great marriage counseling that reaches over the top? And here it is. You say now, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And wives, see that you respect your husbands. Wow, that's counterculture, but I'm telling you, there, you, take the time to read it and you'll, you'll see the light that's there. And then the last one is, I really appreciate the song we sang tonight about the panoply of God. Do you know the word panoply? I, I, I suppose in the last year, the only time I've ever used it is in a, in a sermon or singing that song. It's not a word that we use, but it means the armor of God. And so how this wraps up is the armor of God. I'm in verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. You reckon they need it? You reckon that they need it in this idolatrous atmosphere? And I, I don't suppose it's so very different from ours. People today serve the, at the idol of the woke movement, ever-changing, ever-moving, and yet demanding so much of its adherence, everybody's got to follow it. And if you don't, you know, there's, there's a price to be paid in our culture today, and it's growing. The woke movement, I don't suppose we're so terribly different from them. They needed the armor of God, and so do we. Put on verse 11, the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness of this age against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places. Can you see that? When I use the term the woke movement, can you see that? The darkness that is described there, and that is exactly what we're facing today in, in things that are just frankly unspeakable. They're, they're so shocking, you just can't believe it. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. I'm a Christian. I'm not ashamed of it. And I will never forsake my Lord. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. If you were going to write a letter to the Ephesians during the time of Diana, the goddess Diana, what would you say to those Christians? In what order would you say them? You talk about a man who builds a house. I've always thought this was interesting. I've never built a house myself. Built a cabin one time. Had to do a lot of study to do that. And one of, the, one of the things is not learning how to cut a board or drive a nail. It's about the order in which you do things. If you, if you pour that foundation, you pour a pad before you put in the plumbing, 
you, you're going to have to break up that foundation and come back and put in the, the, the plumbing. That's it is the order of, in which things come. And that's true about the whole thing. But if you go ahead and put up the sheetrock and then say, you know, we ought to do some wiring. You're going to have to take the sheetrock back down and get back and put the wiring back in. And that's, that application is just all over that house. You, you just have to know the order. Isn't it interesting by inspiration that Paul writes the book of Ephesians and the order in which you put things? I like to think about that. So he, he gave them hope in, in 16 different ways at least. And then he says, you're one body in Christ, Jew and Gentile. He puts you into one and you're saved by grace through faith. In chapter 3, it is so wonderful to be a Christian. It means everything. In chapter 4, follow the doctrine. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, now you be careful to live a moral life. You've got to be distinctive. You can't, you can't live like pigs. You've got to live like Christians. Get it right. And hold on to your marriage. And be sure that every day you wear the panoply of God, the armor of God. Don't you love to study the Bible? Is there someone here tonight who wants to obey the gospel? Now would just be such a good time. Maybe, maybe you've been studying with somebody and you've made up your mind, I want to be a Christian. You don't have to wait for a worship assembly to, be, to become a Christian. But we always like to ask, is anybody here who wants to obey the gospel because we want to help you? If you want to repent of your sins and confess Jesus with your mouth, I believe Jesus is God's son. And you can be immersed tonight into Christ. The Bible says it's for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll come up out of that water to walk in newness of life. You will be saved. And maybe maybe you're here tonight and you just really need the prayers of Christians. And we're here for you and we'll be so happy to do that. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. Brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.